Hi, everybody. Welcome to The Radical Bureaucrat, a podcast for people who want to change institutions from the inside. I'm Sam Rosaldo, and I believe that good government matters, like, a lot. Yes, me too. I'm Abram Guerra, and I believe that complicated problems never have simple solutions. Oh, me too. If you work in a bureaucracy like we do, or if you care about bureaucracies, then we think you'll get a lot out of our podcast, The Radical Bureaucrat. So for this episode, we've chosen another article to talk about together. Uh, The article is called Radical Change the Quiet Way, and it's by Dr. Deborah Meyerson, who's an academic and researcher that's done some kind of interesting work on how individual people affect institutional change. Uh, And that work has a decidedly academic bent to it. Most of that work is done teaching uh, organizational behavior in the engineering, education and business schools at Stanford. I actually thought this was a really great choice for us uh, as we're thinking through, like, what is this radical bureaucrat thing about? At the very beginning, she sort of has her, like, thesis sentence or whatever, which is, is there any way to rock the boat without falling out of it? And I kind of feel like that's exactly what was appealing about your radical bureaucrat idea, which was like, yeah, like, I want to rock the boat, but I don't want to fall out. Yeah. I mean, because if you fall out, then you're no longer going to be a bureaucrat. (laughs) Yeah, just a radical, Uh, a drowning radical. It's a different podcast. (laughs) If you like what you're hearing on our podcast, leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. It really does make a world of difference. I was exposed to this article because I started some coursework at the new school at Milano, um, at the new school uh, in organizational change management about like, I don't know, seven years ago or something. And, uh, I started the master's program that decided not to continue, but I, I, I guess I was going through the basement and I was looking at some of my old binders and getting rid of stuff. And I, this article caught my eye before we had this radical bureaucrat podcast idea, but I had put it to the side and then I, I pulled it out recently. Um, and so this idea of who are the change makers other than the people you normally read about the, the, you know, we in, in, in business school or, or in, in all these types of uh, programs, these these master's programs, you're always reading about quote unquote leaders, but the leaders always are the people who like head the organization. Yeah. Which is kind of ironic that you're teaching all these young people about leadership, but the example is like a one in 5,000 person, like someone who's running a large company. Like right. most people are not gonna be that person. And so I think what always, um, interested me in this was that it was one of the few articles where it talked about leading from the middle. Yeah, it's interesting. I spent so much of my time in grad school reading these like Harvard Business Review articles. Um, and it's so funny, like we were talking a little bit before we hit record about how like formulaic they can be like, right. it's funny, like they're trying the grad schools are kind of or universities, I guess, are trying to like train you to like think in this way or whatever. I think you make a really interesting point about how often it's like this like highly high amount of positional power is always the person in the story. It's like the right. CEO or the CMO or something like because that. Because that's the only one who can be the leader. Yeah, because that's the only one who can be the leader. And I actually had a whole class in grad school that was about this. It was called mm-hmm. strategy implementation. And only people who had the like strategy concentration would take it because like it didn't really count for anything else. And like the school that I went to was filled with type A people who only took things that counted. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, So it was just a group of people who were trying to think through these issues of like how you drive change and how you, you sort of do strategy. Mm -hmm. And um, his thing, 
uh, he said kind of what you just did, the professor. Uh, professor, uh, I think he's em emeritus now, uh, Ken Hatton at Boston University. Um, he uh, said that we had all these strategy classes, but none of them addressed what all of us would be facing immediately after grad school, which was having no positional power right, right. and like no ability to like implement a five point plan. But so how do you affect change from the middle? Sort of like what you're saying. And there's some good books out there about this. But yeah, I thought I thought it was an interesting article, uh, except for all of the like gag inducing, like formulaicness of uh, the typical Harvard Business Review article. Right. right. So one thing in particular in the article that I really like, there's a quote <clears throat> that I pulled out because I felt like it was really speaking to me. Yeah. It said, uh, I, I actually, when I read this quote, I know what you're going to say. I'm just going to tell you in advance. I thought it was speaking to you too. Like, I was like, this makes me think of Abram. So go ahead. So the quote is, yeah, we've teased the quote now. The quote is, they all see things a bit differently from the quote norm. But despite feeling at odds with aspects of the prevailing culture, they genuinely like their jobs and want to contribute to succeed in them to effectively use their differences as the impetus for constructive change. So I felt like, oh, wow, like this is kind of about me. Like it, it really made me want to go back and read the rest of her research to see like, how does this work? Because I have, especially since joining the DOE, I have felt like my identity and who I am and the ways that that results in me seeing things differently is like a critical part of driving change for a better system for the sake of the children, ultimately, because traditionally these sort of spaces around like civic engagement or bureaucracy have been so dominated by a particular kind of people and I'm not really that kind of people. And I do see myself as like leveraging the parts of who I am that are different as like a catalyst for the sort of better world that I sort of hope that we can get to. Yeah. I, when I read that quote though, you know, it, it also though, it speaks to me in the same way that you're talking about. But then I also think like, on the one hand, it's like, we're trying to do this in a way that is like she says, tempered and evolutionary. But then the other part of me that wants to burn the place down. <laughs> and right. And we talk, I think we're going to keep coming back to yeah. this. Like, is this the thing that we want to like go down with the ship on? Is this a, like, how far can we push? That, that's where I feel my, my inner conflict sometimes. Yeah, I was at a great uh, like panel event at, uh, what does BRIC stand for? The Brooklyn yeah. RIC, B-R-I-C, um, where they do like this TV show um, and they were having a panel about school segregation. And one of the people on the panel was Nicole Hannah-Jones, recent MacArthur genius. So at this thing, she made this burn it down comment. And I remember she was going back and forth with Brad Lander, who's a city councilman here right. in New York about this idea of burning it down. And I yeah. went up to Brad afterwards. And, and Landis was like, I don't know how else to do this if not incrementally. Like, that's Right, exactly. Yeah. So, mm -hmm. so I went up to Lander afterwards and this was exactly his line. Like my whole career has been about what is the change that we can accomplish? I don't know what burning it down looks like. I can't yeah. imagine that. And I think I tried to get across to him that like, it's not that I really want to burn the building down. I, you know, I, I think that that would be maybe a waste of, uh, a nice building. Certainly the building I work in is nice. It's like this historic <laughs> building in lower Manhattan. It's really that frustration, that disappointment 
And, and even that kind of like hopelessness around like, God, this thing is never going to change. That makes people say stuff like that. Like, I want to burn it down. And Nicole Hannah-Jones did a great job of articulating like, why not? Tell me why we can't burn it down. Because there's no reason. There's no reason why these institutions have to go on forever. And if you stop defending them blindly out of the belief that they just have to go on forever, then you can start to engage in like, what is the actual change that we're trying to find? So I think it's an interesting kind of tension. And I use that phrase a ton. Like, yeah, well, we could always just burn it down. Right. <laughs> but like, I don't actually want to start a fire like get arrested or whatever but like it's just that i want people to feel that sense of disappointment or frustration and that's the only way i'm communicating it is like you know why why does it not have to be burned down or whatever the other part about burning it down though is that um i think people question whether it's ever possible to make an equitable and just institution given the structures that were created during a time that was almost explicitly racist mm -hmm. or was explicitly racist and, and, you know, classist and yeah. people were excluded from these institutions. Like the, we forget the foundations on which these right. institutions that we think are equitable now were built. Yeah. And, and it's funny because over the last couple of minutes, I think we've been doing the thing that annoys me a lot in podcasts, which is like, we haven't actually named racism. We haven't actually named whiteness. We haven't actually named capitalism or militarism, the like, foundational roots right. of all of this stuff. And so I think that is the point that Nicole Hannah Jones and many, many others, uh, so many people have been arguing this for so long that like, we can't just ignore this history. We can't just ignore the roots. Maybe we'll try harder during this podcast to just like come out and say it. So the author introduces us to Peter, right? This is the first case example she gives who Dr. Myerson, because you got to have case examples in an HBR article, right? right? Yeah. And lots of them. Lots of them. So Dr. Myerson points to him as an exemplar of the folks that she calls tempered radicals. Peter is a black man who's working in a bank and he decides that his priority is to hire people of color and not just hire people of color, but then when he hires them, tell them to hire somebody else mm -hmm. who's a person of color. Yeah, like kind of recruit them into right. his movement. Although, although she has to temper that with by saying um, high quality candidates. Right. Uh, <laughs> like, uh, highly qualified. Highly qualified, right, right, right. right. But then when, when the people he hires gets upset, he tells them that, you know, they, they for the greater good, they've got to stick with it. And um, he endures, like, even like, being called racial epithets, I think, right? Uh, yeah, she doesn't say which epithets, but you can yeah, probably imagine. Right. And at the end, it's like he triumphs because 3,500 people of color have been hired by this bank. Yeah. And I think she was pointing to basically the idea of like building a constituency. These 3,500 people represent a like grassroots source of power to drive broader change in the organization. And that that's sort of the victory or just that like these 3,500 people are the victory, um, which is... Yeah. I'm perhaps more people than I've sort of had a direct impact on or whatever. So not Absolutely. to minimize his impact at all, but yeah, there is something troubling about even the phrase like tempered radical. It's kind of like the, the mm. Harvard folks are begging us to like, not be too radical. Right. right. Which makes sense if you are the like original fount of all things privilege, right? Like yeah. you're sort of like, yeah, yeah, let's do radical change, but like, let's temper it, guys. <laughs> right, right. 
I don't know. So, so right now I'm reading the autobiography of Martin Luther King because we're coming up on Martin Luther King Day. Mm-hmm. And it's actually not an autobiography. He actually died before he had the chance to write his autobiography. Okay. But it's a collection of notes that um, the guy at the Stanford King Center uh, with Coretta Scott King's help. Clay has Carson. Like, uh, Clay Carson. Thank you. Yeah. Um, has like assembled and it basically uh, the introduction he's saying that like it's obvious that he meant to write a memoir that he mm-hmm. was like taking down these notes and so he like assembles them and sort of puts them into a form that that sort of feels very much like an autobiography and in it Martin Luther King reflects a ton on this uh sort of tension of like this idea of like despair and like how despair leads to this bitterness this anger of like uh well, it's sort of like the burn it down sort of feeling that I was describing. You know, a lot of the reason people don't like Martin Luther King or the civil rights era is because of the nonviolence thing, because it's not radical enough, because it's too tempered, because it's too moderate. Um, and if I if I'm really honest and critical of my like heroes or whatever, you know, the end of the civil rights era is the beginning of the mass incarceration era. Right. right. It's all of these lawyers at the NAACP. Not that I don't like the NAACP, but it's all these lawyers who, if you read Michelle Alexander's book, decided that they were not going to side with criminals. They were going to side with professionals and mm-hmm. people who wanted like people like this at a bank who wanted to make sure that more people of color had jobs at the bank. And that choice led to the explosion of a carceral system that now houses a f- one quarter, one out of every four prisoners in the world despite us having only like 3% of the world's population right. here. Um, so like it's undeniable that the sort of moderate or tempered approach is, is problematic, like leads to some problematic ends is, I don't know. Is this the advice that you're giving to like business school students? Who's like really the audience for HBR is like business school students. Is this the advice that you're giving to people of color who are in business school, which I can tell you are not that many people. I went to business school. I'm Latino. I could look around and find them and, mm-hmm. and did. And we, you know, we got together regularly and like, there's not that many of us. Um, and, and, and enculturating them this, with this message of tempering or moderatism yeah. is troubling. Right. It's true. So when I read this, I thought my first thought was like, how's this guy's personal health? Like he sounds mm-hmm. like someone who has an ulcer <laughs> um, or who, who like has a stroke, like because he had to endure so much right. and not express himself um, fully. And and it does beg the question, you know, I, I also just feel like if we're really going to be radical, like we need to organize. And the whole notion of organizing to me is if you get enough people then there's a sense of self-protection there. Like the, the yeah. and there's a risk involved. Mm-hmm. And that's part of being, that's also a question about what does it mean to be a radical? Like how much are you willing to put on the line? Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of the messaging to the students, it's like, stay safe, keep your job. Mm-hmm. Like these tempered radicals, they all value their jobs and they don't, they're, they're going to make sure that they don't rock the boat so much that they don't fall out. Right. Yeah. And maybe, maybe what it is, is that there is a time for, um, for that. When you've got nobody in the bank, yeah. there's a time for like absorbing yeah. the insults right. and, and trying to make that sort of incremental change. Yeah, and finding where you can have an impact. Yeah. And finding where you can have an impact. And I wonder if part of the troublingness of it is that it kind of feels like that's not the time that we're in anymore, mm. that we are not in a time where there are no people of color in our institutions. Right. Um, 
We are in a time where the people of color who have been able to access positional power have all been taught to be patient and take your time. Right. And it's difficult for them to feel like uh, not well to not feel like there's a conflict of conscience. Yeah. Right? I mean, and we should say this article was written in October 2001. Right. It was a different time. It was a very different time. Yeah. yeah. All right. So uh, a bunch of this article is dedicated to these four tactics. And I just have to say, like, there is this classic, cheesy Harvard Business School, Harvard Business Review way of seeing the world where everything is boiled down to a set of under like 10 steps. Right. Right. If it's 10 or more steps, like that's too complicated. Right. And there's like too much nuance there. It's <laughs> got to be like a process that we can get down to like four easy steps. So can I just say that um, <laughs> I saw, there was a speaker series in the DOE uh, last year. And um, I don't know if you went to any of them, but I saw uh, Chris Emden and oh. Kozel. So I went to a bunch of those. I was one of like the most loyal um, attendees. I thought it was great. But what was funny was that Emden came and he was like, here are the seven things I want you guys to know. <laughs> and then the next speaker, the next month was Kozel. And Kozel was like, people are always coming with seven things. What is this about seven things? <laughs> what is it like, about seven? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> It's it a holy number seven. Um, yeah, I don't. But she chose four, so more power to her. Yeah, so you know she got it under seven. That's good. That's an accomplishment. Yeah. So, uh, so she calls them strategies. Oh, strategy. So, so the four strategies are disruptive self-expression. That's one. Verbal jujitsu, variable term opportunism, and strategic alliance building. Never did the snake oil machine of consultants at Harvard Business School <laughs> come up with a better set of content-free terms. You know, this is, I, I poke fun, but this is what I do all the time. I'm always looking for a framework. I'm always looking yeah. to organize the chaos that is organizational change into some kind of frame because there's no way to communicate it to other people if you don't. Right. And so as much as I give a hard time, I'm an academic at heart, but yeah. So like, why don't we dig into these four strategies? Okay. So the first one is disruptive self-expression. And basically this means being yourself. Do you, as the kids say. <laughs> um, and she puts it as an individual simply acts in a way that feels personally right, but that others notice. So, I mean, they, <laughs> Uh, the two examples that I, I remember off the top of my head, one is a, uh, someone who wears a dashiki to work, black person who wears like, <laughs> why is it always a dashiki? I don't know. But, um, and then she's, she makes the difference between like, you could wear it to the office party. Like that's an expression of a disruptive self-expression, or you could wear it to work every day. Like, so there's, there's gradations. And then she has another one, which I felt like was a little bit, um, more relatable, uh, which was the black woman who wears her hair in, in cornrows and uh, and then um, kind of has the final say because someone tells her like she should put her hair in a more professional way and she just listens and doesn't say anything, then goes and gives a kick-ass presentation. And then afterwards, it's like, look, my hair doesn't have anything to do with the content of my well, I think she uh, gloats a little bit. She's yeah. like, well, as you just saw, yeah. my hair doesn't deter my ability yes. to do an excellent job yes. or something like yes. that. Yes. 
It's funny, the hair example is an interesting one and it's a pervasive one. Um, and I'm glad that it's something that is being talked about like a lot more openly now. It actually, it, when I was in business, so my first semester in business school, when I was taking organizational behavior, um, the um, there was a case like this of a person who was told to change her hair because the, the client they were meeting was very conservative. Mm -hmm. uh, and so you should get your hair did. And nobody in the class commented on the hair thing. Mm -hmm. We talked about like, uh, identity and like uh, uh, disrespect or whatever, but nobody like said the word hair, like let alone racism, let alone race. Nobody said the word black or white. Yeah. They didn't, we didn't talk about that. And I talked to the professor right after and I was like, okay, how many times have you taught this case? Uh, a bunch of times, you know, hundreds of people have gone through this discussion. Um, has anybody ever mentioned the hair thing? Yeah. And he's like, what do you mean the hair thing? And I was like, oh my God, <laughs> like, how do you guys not realize that this is a thing? This is a huge part of people's experience yeah. in life and in their professional world. And I realized why, the reason why nobody talks about the hair is because there was no black people in the class. Yeah. Because black people's voices had been, whether deliberately or not, excluded from this conversation for, for decades. Yeah. And so, uh, we actually started at my grad school a committee to address this, to address mm. underrepresented minorities. And all of the cities like Boston, where these schools are, have tons of black and Latino people living in right. them. And like none of them are really like brought into this conversation right. or these conversations. So, yeah, uh, this is kind of an interesting one. And it's one that I find myself thinking about more and more. You probably noticed over the last few months, I've been like growing out my hair mm. and like, uh, there are like subtle things that I feel like I I want to do something to like represent both my sort of Latino-ness, my Latinidad and my indigenous-ness mm -hmm. um, because that's sort of what I am. If you can't see me in the podcast, but I'm a brown-skinned person, basically a Mexican if you saw me on the street, but that means that I'm part Native American and part um, Southern European, basically, because that's how Conquest He has a lot works. of facial hair, too. I got a ton of facial hair, and I have a sort of a Jesus hairdo right now. Yeah. Um, and part of that is this. Like, I'd like to... I actually considered... Lisa won't let me do it, but I considered buying, like, a turquoise, like, jewelry thing. Mm -hmm. Because that's, like, a signal mm -hmm. that, like, you're a, you're a Native American. Because I'm trying to perform Native Americanness because I'm trying to counter the myth that Native Americans don't exist anymore. Right. We do. We're everywhere. Right. That thing that says that like X percent of people in your city are Hispanic, that means that there's a bunch of Native Americans near you. We just don't think of it that way because we've been enculturated to believe that Indians are invisible or don't exist. So have you have you gotten any kind of pushback and as you've been growing your hair out has, has anyone questioned it um they wouldn't dare i know right? <laughs> maybe, uh, maybe not in new york city i think people have made comments uh -huh. and and i think people I, it's always hard to tell uh -huh. if people are making a comment that is like uh sideways or if it's like just a making oh, conversation man. comment like this is the, like uh, oh wow your hair is really racism, racism, right? right like you never know yeah, you never know right. um but i try to get people Try to assume best intentions right, as is right. the rule. But yeah, I, I mean, I will see. I'll continue to push the boundaries and see how far I get. Hopefully I don't have to get face tattoos before it becomes a problem. <laughs> so, you know, there's one more example she gives of this that I, I um, had to look back in the article to remember. And it's interesting to me now. The other example is a guy who has kids and starts going into work early so that he can leave early. 
And um, I am definitely a big fan of people not leaving. He's not leaving early. I mean, he's leaving by six or something like that. Yeah. But I'm a big six fan o'clock of is early. People who are trying to find work life balance as right. a father with two kids. So I like the example. I, fortunately, where I work now doesn't have this, but I know there are other parts of the DOE like Tweed where it exists, where it's like you have to prove that you're putting in the hours. You have to kind of show face, even though you're getting like you're becoming less and less productive the more hours you work. And it's, right. it's not always smart yeah. with smart way of working. But the thing about that example that I just realized as we were talking about it was that I'm assuming he's a white guy. Yep. That he has enough privilege yep. in order to shift this culture. And if you were black, like it, the art, the story wouldn't even make sense. It'd be like, he, cause he'd be, he'd be trying to, 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 break down too many barriers at once. Um, but because Slow down, buddy. I know, right? Like you, that, that, that was actually, I think it's like a classic example of using his privilege, but in a good way. Sure. You know? um, and, and still being disruptive in a certain sense. Um, yeah, I actually, my initial reaction to that example was kind of cynical or negative. Like, mm. Of course, they would point to work-life balance. Of course, they would point to family, like, obligations or whatever. Like, she leads with this example when talking about self-expression. And I'm kind of like, okay. I, and luckily, she, she has, like, two or three more examples. And so mm -hmm. I didn't get stuck on this. But, like, yeah, I mean, I think we do need that. I think, you know, the reason we have a 40-hour work week, the reason we have weekends, the reason we have holidays is not work-life balance. The reason we have all those things is the labor movement. Mm -hmm. We have all these things because unions rioted and demanded <laughs> right, that right. we have a like 40-hour work week. Yeah. And, and in fact, it's exactly, it's, it's literally out of the union 40 hours for sleep, 40 hours for work, and 40 hours for yourself. Mm. That that was a fair balance. It's a mm -hmm. third of your time for rest, a third of your time for your employer and a third of your time for you. And that how could you be free unless you had at least as much time for your own interests as you were giving uh, in order to earn a wage. Well, that's um, radical. So, so before that, there was no such thing as a 40 hour work week. There were no yeah. weekends. There was no, there was, there was none of these things, right? So right. if you like your like holiday weekend or whatever, you should go find a union person and thank them because it wouldn't exist without them. Uh, unions nowadays are really different than they used to be. But, um, my point is that, uh, work-life balance is sort of like a politically correct way of saying like treatment like a human. Right. So the second one, and maybe we can just go through this one a, okay. a little more quickly. Um, the second one is this idea of verbal jujitsu. Um, so verbal jujitsu is actually a favorite phrase of mine. Um, I kind of wonder if this is the article where it first came up. Like, is this, did she invent this term verbal jujitsu or has that mm. been around for a long time? She calls it, quote, turning an insensitive statement, action, or behavior back on itself. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure I exactly agree with that. I think verbal jujitsu is more about like redirecting the energy because that's what jujitsu is, right? Like, mm -hmm. and so my favorite example is when you're in a meeting and you really don't want to be the person that like uh, writes up the minutes afterwards. And so you say, <laughs> hey, uh, who'd like to take notes? Right. And by like saying that, you automatically are not the person who has to right. do it. Right. That's verbal jujitsu. Right. It's when you're like sort of cleverly deploying language to get the mm -hmm. thing you want. And this like Jedi mind trick is such a big part of what business school is for. Like I paid so much grad school tuition <laughs> to like learn all the verbal <laughs> jujitsu tricks. 
and so in this case for like this sort of tempered radical thing, I think she's trying to focus it on how you handle basically microaggressions, right? right. How you use a microaggression and redirect that energy into the thing that you're trying yes. to advocate for. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's basically it. And um, the frustrating part about it is her examples are a little bit, I'd say passive aggressive in that they're, people aren't able to fully express themselves in these examples. They're, they're, they don't feel fully honest because it, you have to hold back that amount. I do think that it is an effective tactic with microaggressions to, to ask questions and get, right. you know, and, and, and so that's basically what I took away. Yeah. So when somebody talks about LGBT mm-hmm. plus folks was in the, the mm-hmm. article, um, and it was like, oh, why, uh, you don't have to flaunt it. Mm-hmm. And the verbal jujitsu was, oh, well, this picture of your wife on your desk, like, oh, I feel like, uh, you might not want to flaunt it. It's mm-hmm. like this kind of cheeky, almost like passive aggressive thing, right? Is it a better strategy to like, basically the like, give them enough rope to hang themselves strategy? Okay. Like, what, what do you, do you mean? mean? Flaunt it. Exactly. Tell me more. <laughs> yeah. Like yeah. this is like a friend of a friend of mine, Khalila Brand, uh, has been trying to teach me how to deploy this phrase. Tell me more. <laughs> um, and actually it might be Aaron Dunleavy that like has given her that phrase because she says it a lot too. Um, but it's this phrase, uh, uh, that is so powerful. Tell yeah. me more. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. Tell me more about that. I'm confused. Right. Say, say more. If your goal is change, then a, like learning is always good and important and having a learner's posture is important. But also if your goal is change and you're working in this area that has like so much cognitive distance for people, it seems a lot more effective rather than to turn it into this competitive, passive aggressive maybe thing. Like maybe it's better to frame it as like a learning moment and like let the person come to their own conclusion about what they're saying. Yeah, I don't know. I don't think it's always going to as most most hbr articles um it's not going to be quite as smooth as they lay it out in these pretty Mm, examples yeah anyway the third uh strategy is variable term opportunism (laughs) which obviously requires no explanation you all understand what that means (laughs) done podcast done (laughs) no she calls this the ability to spot create and capitalize on short and long-term opportunities for change i mean you're you see your window for opportunity and you do something that is, there, is kind is there of a question. No, nah, I don't have a question. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> that's what she, that's what we should all be doing. It, it seems almost like that's what Peter was doing in the first example. Like he saw an oh, opportunity yeah. to do something um, in hiring. And so he did it there. So there is short term change and there's medium term change. And there's long term change and sensing being able to sense those opportunities and capitalize on them is sort of what she's she's talking about here. Right. Mm-hmm. I think that the wording. So variable term opportunism sounds to me like something that like a day trader would do. Mm-hmm. Like it's something about like a, a, a stock option or something like that. What it's a pretty simple idea, I guess, which is like keep your eyes open for the opportunities. Yeah. Right. And to I think do that something this differently. is. Yeah, do something differently. Keep your eyes open for opportunities to do something differently. I think that this is a thing that I try to cultivate in myself um, is this idea of just kind of being aware. And like, I think the thing that I'm trying to constantly convince people around me to do is to like not operate under the assumptions, not operate under the status quo, but to kind of question everything and to like find those opportunities by questioning everything, right? All right, so finally, the last of the four keys to unlocking your tempered radical (laughs) is uh, strategic alliance building. 
So uh, sadly, uh, like like the verbal jujitsu thing, this is like one of those things that I was paying for when I went to business school, which is like, how do I get people to do the stuff that I think they should be doing and not the stuff that they think they should be doing? So pretty much being a, a manager is sort of like being a cross between a hypnotist or a, like Jedi and like being a bean counter and making sure that all the beans end up on the right side of the of the spreadsheet. So she calls strategic alliance building this uh, quote, pushing through change with more force. So like recruiting people to add momentum to your sort of change initiative. So this, I don't know, is this gross? Is this idea of like trying to get other people to do the thing that you want? Does this seem weird or, or passive aggressive or I don't know. What do you think? I didn't see it that way. I mean, I, I see it as it's an organizing strategy. Like you need alliances. You, you No one's going to go off and be the lone ranger to affect institutional change, especially if you're not on top. Why not? Why can't I be a lone ranger with no positional power that changes everything? <laughs> right. Why not? <laughs> <laughs> why doesn't that work, Sam? But why? So, so what's, cause so I didn't, I didn't see it as getting other people to do the work for you. I saw it as like, what's gross about building an alliance? Well, in the sense, uh, like I said, in the sense that it's about convincing other people to do the thing that you want them to do. When that comes in the medium of like advice for managers on how to affect change, I feel like it often gets executed as this desire for mind control. And I guess if you're, it's sort of like an ends justifies the means thing. Like if your cause is just, then maybe it's not that big a deal. Mm. Um, but like how often in the history of managers has the cause been just, right? I don't think that often. I think right. mostly the cause is profit. Right. Well, this gets into the, um, one of the points that I wanted to talk about is, and, and I think we talked about this last time as well, is what does it mean to be a radical mm. and how do people become radicalized? So she, she even uses the word that uh, came up in the Eva Moskowitz article, revolutionary. So, so here's a quote. She says, to do all this, tempered radicals understand revolutionary change for what it is, a phenomenon that can occur suddenly, but more often than not, requires time, commitment, and the patience to endure. So she's saying, she's talking about revolutionary change, um, but she describes it as how, how do you go about creating revolutionary change? She's not talking about what it is. Yeah. So there's no judgment on, like you said, like if you're a manager and you're trying to build an alliance to drive up profit because you think you have the right strategy for profit increases, um, that that's revolutionary in her, yeah. by, by the definition she's given, right. because it's a change. Like that's all you need to be revolutionary. There's nothing about justice. A shortcoming of these HBR articles is that if you're reading them, you know, they, they, they get taught whether you're preparing to be a nonprofit leader or a business leader, but the example is always business. Yeah. Um, yeah. That like part of that maybe is just the weakness of like academic work that it has to be generalizable. Right. Um, but more, more to the point, like we should think about defining revolutionary in a way that makes sense for us. So I've actually been thinking about this because you sort of made reference to this in the last article that we talked about with how fast and loose we play with this word revolutionary. And uh, so I did the sort of super nerdy academic thing, which I often do, which is to like go on to Wiktionary and dig into the like word history and etymology stuff. Wait. 
<laughs> I can tell you're on the edge of your seats, aren't you? You can fast forward this. It'll take about five minutes. No, um, no, no. I'm fascinated. So revolution basically comes from a word in Latin for like turning something over or turning something around. If you turn a boat in the opposite direction, that's revolution. If the earth spins on its axis, that's revolution. Actually, it's a particular um, conjugation of this word. It's, it's revolutionem, uh, which is the accusative singular. So it's like a single person turning a thing over, right? So, so revolutionary means like a, an active turning over. So the best example I can think of is a religious one. So, and maybe that's just my frame of reference, but there's this one person, this singular person named Jesus who turns over the tables in the temple, right? Mm -hmm. And that turning over of the tables is what revolution is. Uh, mm -hmm. It's this idea of, of taking the thing, the institution, the whatever, and flipping it over. Right. And, and sort of maybe that also means starting from scratch or replacing it. Uh, we usually mean it in like one of two ways. Um, and this is sort of beyond the sort of etymology, the like what uh, academics call critical discourse analysis, thinking about the ways in which words are deployed in the larger social discourse. I think sometimes we mean it pejoratively. We mean it to be like uh, negative. But if we don't mean it pejoratively, we sort of mean it's complimentary, like this new smartphone is revolutionary, right? Which right. is sort of what you're saying, like, mm -hmm. oh, the profit margin we're getting from this new method of growing corn that's genetic modified is revolutionary. <laughs> right, right. So like the using it in this sort of complimentary sense feels really like disingenuous, right? right. Is cheese really revolutionary? <laughs> like this cheese is revolutionary? No, it's not really revolutionary. Um, and so then we use it, we end up using it because it sort of sounds like this marketing ploy, we sort of use it in a sort of ironic way. So we can use it in this complimentary way, which sounds disingenuous, and then we can use it in an ironic way. And finally, we use it in a way that's really pejorative, where we say, um, basically like revolutions are messy, and they're typically violent and they're impractical and like they never really work. And yeah. so we're sort of socialized by this constant barrage of negativity around the idea of revolution. Um, and we're sort of socialized to believe that all of our revolutioning as a society is in our past. Right. Like, oh, the revolution that happened in 1776. Except right. It's behind us. Right. right. Um, and, and I think that there is probably a, a non a pejorative, like a positive and a non-ironic or cheesy meaning that we can try to deploy. And this is the revolution that we talk about uh, if we really uh, are around people who we trust or if we're really convinced that, you know, let's throw consequences to the wind and let's really do the change. Um, let's really turn it over. I think we can I think we can learn to like embrace an alternative meaning of revolutionary that is both positive and not ironic or marketing, but it's like, yeah, like this is important. Let's do it. We need to turn this thing over because it's important. I like that you started with Jesus in the table because one <laughs> thing that the, the one metaphor we always talk about is do we want a seat at the table or do we want to turn the table over? <sighs> so always, and, yeah. always. And so, you know, and getting a seat at the table, like, what does that mean to get a seat at the table? This is another kind of phrase that we're going to have to unpack in all of mm -hmm. this. I think I feel like you're rubbing your brow as you say that yeah. because you're you're envisioning more etymology in the future. <laughs> and like, oh, are we really going to go through these like words and laugh? No, you know, what? I'm, it's, it's not the etymology <laughs> that bothers me. It's the 
it's the conversations that you and I have both been a part of where people have debated this point. Right. And they've been kind of painful. Yeah. Painful both in that uh, people get their feelings hurt and also painful in this like, fuck, do we have to have this conversation again? Like we, we want to have the same idea of what we mean by things and where we want to go. But at the same time, all of these conversations at the end can sound like just a lot of talk, a lot of words. Um, the, the other part of this that I wonder, and I guess this is a question back to you, is like this didn't come up in your etymology, but how much risk is involved in revolution and how much moral judgment is there? Why, why is the cheese not revolutionary? <laughs> is, is, like we don't, I don't think it's revolutionary because there's no risk and there's no justice in the new cheese. But is that part of the definition that we're that you found or that we're talking about? I mean, I think it's not it's not so much definition as it is like connotation, right? Right. right like right. it's in the way we use it. And I I do think that the, it triggers in us a like skepticism, doesn't it? When you say like, oh, this, you know, this new cheese this is a stupid example. This this <laughs> cheese is revolutionary. It's just you cannot say that sentence without feeling like it's ridiculous. Right. Because clearly it's not really revolutionary. Right. right. So like there is this disingenuous or ironic way in which we deploy the word. Um, and I think you're right. I think it does have something to do with there being a greater purpose. Like cheese is one. I love cheese. Yeah, me too. But it doesn't really trigger any grander designer purpose. It's not about any moral issue. It's not about anything that matters it's just cheese right right and right. i feel the same way about smartphones smartphones have changed the world certainly um i think your kids are in the right now on a mobile device watching television right which is why it's quiet enough for us to record right, right. now and like that's revolutionary right. the idea that you could like take this little like pane of glass with you somewhere and, yeah and like watch television is like crazy revolutionary in the sense that it's totally different and a, and a fundamental change in the way we think about uh, what a computer or a television is. But even that, like, is it really, really, does it really matter? Does it really matter right. that we can watch television wherever we want? Right. No. Right. Who cares where we can watch television? People are dying in the streets. Yeah. Like, why should we be so concerned about being able to watch television on every screen? Like, that's not revolutionary. Smartphones are revolutionary in the sense that you can use them to videotape a police officer shooting an innocent person. Mm -hmm. That's revolutionary, right? Right. So in that, and that, and so then the sort of deployment of revolutionary around some new technology or whatever, some new idea or, or profit center or whatever, is sort of complicated by the potential for actual revolutionary difference and the extent to which you're just kind of marketing more stuff. So there's one more thing that uh, we wanted to talk about in this article. She does a thing here that is also a classic HBR piece, which is... Um, We're okay with HBR. Yeah. We, we keep kind of like panning them as this terrible thing. Like, yeah. I read a lot of these articles and like get something out this of This is it. like, yes, I do too, right? This is, but this is a requisite kind of thing, which is here's the key lesson 
like there are certain types of people in the world and how do we cultivate those these types of people? Right. So here's the yeah. quote. She says, there's a key lesson for executives who are anxious to foster leadership in their organizations. It suggests that leadership development may not rest with the with expensive external programs or even with the best intentions of the human resources department. Rather, it may rest with the open-minded recognition that those who appear to rock the boat may turn out to be the most effective of captains. Do we believe this? Does this, does this something we see happen? I mean, what do you think, Gabriel? Well, I think I'd like to believe this because it soothes my fragile ego. Right. I think that I, think that I would like to believe that in my... That someone's going to recognize you? Yeah, exactly. That in my boat rockiness, there is some hint of greatness that should be recognized. Um, I don't know. I think, I think it really depends on what we mean by leadership, right? Like, do we mean leadership in the sense of Andrew Jackson, who could brilliantly lead an army to exterminate a group of people? Right. Or do we mean leadership in the sense of Martin Luther King, who is going to struggle inwardly with his feelings of despair and hopelessness and try to maintain a non-bitter, non-violent posture toward change? Either way, you're talking about change, right? In the case of Andrew Jackson, you're changing the demographic makeup of a, of a piece of land, right? Um, violently changing that demographic makeup. In the case of Martin Luther King, you're non-violently calling on the moral conscience of people to change. Either way, it's change, right? And so if what you're looking for is change, that is this idea of power, of control, um, yes, of violence, right? Of getting things pushed through because they are the destiny made manifest, right? If that's what you mean by leadership, then probably you're not looking for the boat rockers, Right. right. You're not looking for the people that are kind of like disrupting or trying to produce discontinuous or like revolutionary change. Uh, however, if you want moral change, you want change that creates a more just society, a more equitable society. If you want things to be fairer for people, for, for the, the dignity and, and respect of humans to be the central thing then I think you do need to look for people who are on the margins in this way, because I think that's where those people have been pushed by our society. That's where the history has pushed people. And that's why we don't see it very often, right? Because, what do you mean? Well, because most institutions aren't looking for that type of change. When we start to talk about our personal experiences, and, and I can think of experiences both where I hoped to be recognized by people above me, and was not um, for the ways in which I was trying to rock the boat because they weren't really looking for that type of change. I can think of several of those experiences, but I can also think of experiences where as a manager, I had people rocking the boat below me and it, either I didn't, like, I didn't want to elevate their boat rocking. Um, <laughs> That's my boat. Yeah. Stop rocking my boat. Or it took me in other cases to my own credit, I did but it took me a really long time. Mm. Like it didn't, it, it took me a long time to put aside my concerns about the stability of the boat and recognize the legitimacy of what they were pushing mm. for. I think it takes a lot of persistence. And I think both of us have a lot of those types of stories mm. that I think later we might want to unpack a little bit. Yeah, I think that's right. I think there is something about power that, that tempts us toward consolidation and control. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, when we have that power and somebody's rocking the boat underneath us, the impulse is to like, hey, sit down, man. Stop rocking the boat. Yeah. And I think it takes 
a real commitment to one's principles to do something different. As we wrap up here, let's let's end like good radicals. So, so what is one thing that's like a takeaway from all this? As, as radicals, we should always be learning. Um, so, what what is one thing that we learned today that we can use to create a more just and equitable world? I'm still I'm still grappling with what does it mean to be a radical. I appreciate that this article puts forward one definition, and 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 um, it's one of the few articles that goes after this subject. But I I still want more. I still mm. want a clear sense of what is it that I have to do in order to live out my values within this institution. I think that the strategies that she suggests are valid to a certain extent and, and that I use them and I can continue to think about how to use them, but I'm still looking for how much more can I do? How much more can I risk um, mm -hmm. to make a change? So I, I'm left with those questions. Hmm. Yeah, I think uh, a big thing that I learned from reading this and talking it over with you is uh, kind of this idea that like I, that like I'm not alone, that there that there is a like rich history of people who have been trying to like figure this thing out. Um, and and they figured it out with varying levels of sort of fidelity to the principles that I think are important. The idea that you're not alone and the idea that there's a long series of people before you that have done this is a profound source of hope. Um, and I think I learned from from talking about this, that there is there are other people that are kind of asking these questions mm -hmm. um, and that are thinking about how do we do this? How do we nurture uh, a sort of healthy amount of radical thinking? How do we nurture a healthy amount of revolutionary capability? Because it doesn't feel that way in the sort of day to day uh, life of a bureaucrat. It feels like your uh, radicalness is a thing to be guarded and managed hmm. and contained mm -hmm. um, or perhaps channeled toward the, the sort of agenda of the institution at large. Hmm. Well, we're going to wrap up. So we're going to end by being good bureaucrats. The views expressed here are our personal opinions. They do not reflect the official or unofficial position of any government agency, policy, party, leader, or really anyone besides the two of us. This content has not been sponsored or approved by anyone and was mostly just made because we wanted an opportunity to talk about things that matter to everyone, whether they realize it or not. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening, everyone. If you like what you're hearing on our podcast and you think these are questions that your friends or colleagues might be wrestling with, help them out. Yeah, and help us out too. Yeah, spread the word. We really want people who grapple with the same questions we discuss on the show to engage with us. That's right. You can follow us on Twitter. We are at Rad Bureau. That's R-A-D-B-U-R-E-A-U. Or email us at info at radicalbureaucrat.com. Yeah, and leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. It really does make a world of difference. Thank you. Thanks, everyone.